Hello and welcome to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 676. I'm your show host, Richard Jarrett. Joining me over in the USA as ever is Jim McDowell. Good evening, Jim. Evening, Rich. Uh, it is cold, rainy, and getting dark fast here. Winter is upon us. Yeah, same same here. Now, listeners will be quick to note probably that we did a show a couple of days ago, which I think went live online today, Jim. Yeah, this morning it was it was good this morning. We've been teasing this episode, or at least I have, for, for a little while, but uh, we thought we'd jump in pre-Valencia MotoGP, which we'll be covering next week. Just do a quick round out of the British Superbike season, which did end middle of October. And as people might recall, if they've listened to some of the previous episodes, I was at the race that weekend, which is fantastic. Three really good races. So we're just going to have a little chat about those. I've also got an interview which we're going to drop in, which we'll talk a little bit about a little bit later on. Jim, you've managed to... To locate some coverage yeah. tv wise on bsb so obviously we're going to talk about the races we're not going to do news because we did that a couple of days ago on the show and we'll, we'll pick up other news items uh, on on next week's show but just focusing on the bsb tonight what were your first impressions because i'm guessing this is probably the first time you've jumped into bsb for a little while this is the second time that i've actually really watched a bsb round did one with derek long ago when I first started on the show, that was, I cannot think of the kid's name. He was on the Suzuki and he won every race at Donington. Oh, Brad Ray. Ray. Uh, we did that one real early on because I think Andrew, of course, actually edited that one after Derek and I uh, yeah. put it together. But this one was different, a little different because instead of having to watch it on YouTube, I was actually able to find an app called motosport.tv which has a subscription to it monthly, yearly, take your pick. And there is a tremendous amount of racing on there from Le Mans to GT cars to World Rally Championships to looking for Speedway on it. I haven't seen it yet because I love to watch Speedway. So this is really cool. And it's definitely a way to be able to watch a lot of this stuff here in the U.S. that we don't get. Or if you remember, if you're in the U.S. and you remember Speed Channel and Speed Vision, it was sort of every kind of racing you could think of was there. It kind of reminds me of, of that. So it's okay. all good. It's all good. I mean, I was a couple of like in the initial impressions, I really forgot how tight and twisty and unlevel Brands Hatch is. I think like the last time I seen a race from Brands Hatch was some World Superbike back in maybe 2000 time oh. frame <laughs> with, yeah, with Hodgson and... No, Hodgson won won that one then because it was like okay. he had the 999 and some other years prior to that. That was – I was like, Oof, man. And then I thought about it for a minute. Like these guys are really going fast, and there's a lot of Armco and immovable objects a lot closer than what you're used to if you're a world super sport, world super bike, MotoGP kind of fan like yeah this looks a lot more like moto america on <laughs> dodgy racetrack with some dodgy corners here and there and it seemed like uh to me as well the suspension on the bikes was working double overtime to sort of keep everything together i don't know when brands has been repaved anywhere along the way in those years or if it's just a degrading of of the pavement or whatnot but despite all of that the fast guys at the front, Iden, Iden, McKenzie, Bridewell, those guys are just riding the wheels off of those motorcycles. Yeah. Oh, it, it, 
it, it, it's like you almost want to watch with your fingers in front of your eyes because you expect something really terrible to happen. It's like watching a Moto3 race only on like really big bikes in a really small track. I really like the coverage. James Whittem and his little track walk that he had going on before each one. thought those were really good. You know, I, a lot of the voices I remember from the TT, though those guys were there or at the TT or do coverage of the TT yeah. um, as well. So, you know, it's kind of sort of familiar. The action was fantastic. I think it's far better than anything we have here in the U.S. and our national series. Those guys were just hanging it out. Yeah, I think that one of the things that, and I would even say this really with regarding World Superbike, the, the thing that I think is so fantastic about BSB is just the sheer depth of the field and not just in the not just in the superbike class i mean if you look at the the, the stock thousands the super sport 600 uh, they also run a gp2 bike category uh, alongside the super sport race and they had kind of have two championships running within the same race from a spectating point of view is not, not to mention obviously being watching it on tv every other weekend it, it, it's such a packed schedule of high high quality and good racing and although you know become a i suppose we've become a bit anesthetized to, to racing on some of the sort of the, the grand prix tracks which is kind of funny because the brand's circuit that they use now is they always refer to it as the gp course unfortunately it hasn't held a gp for i'm not even sure if they've ever had a a motorcycle grand prix though i'd need to really look back into the history books on that one they used to run the formula one grand prix there up until about the late 80s and then it just kind of fell out of favor because you say jim the armcos were a bit too close brands although you wouldn't you would never think it from watching it on TV, but it is surrounded at various points by housing estates. There was a, a drone shot or something there as they come okay, yeah. as they come back to the last corners and you see housing and yeah. it is this person's backyard is literally on that straight. Yeah. And I'm like thinking, I want that house. <laughs> you get, well, just walk through, get a little stand, sit there and watch racing every weekend. That'd be fantastic. I was chatting to a local guy or somebody who used to be local to the track anyway. And uh, he was telling me that people that live within a certain uh, meterage of the track get some sort of a heavy concession, if not free entry. Because wow. what, what's kind of really done brands hatching over the years in terms of international level racing, at least, is, is more to do with the noise problem in terms of residences nearby you know i mean brands hatch has been a, a track for many many years so anybody that moves there and then complains about the noise is a little bit obtuse in my opinion but nevertheless that's just the way it is and given the, the sort of the woodland nature of it and the fact that it is quite closely bordered by residential there, there's nothing really they can do to move those barriers back so bit by bit over the years it's kind of fallen back but i must say and i have been to brands for quite some years now and year on year i think i've mentioned this on one of the previous episodes it's owned by jonathan palmer and his msv group who are also the kind of the series rights holder i think for british superbikes and they own or he owns and his company msv own about five or six tracks in the uk including uh, as of a few years ago donnington park all of the tracks that they own and I've been going to some of these tracks since the 90s on a sort of fairly frequent basis. Uh, and some of them really were, you know, Second World War level in terms of spectator facilities, toilet blocks, literally built, you know, breeze blocks and uh, holes in the ground. So hats off to, to Jonathan Palmer and his organisation. They have really done a fantastic job of upgrading the tracks with new toilet blocks, good food and drink facilities, just decent walkways around the track. And they've opened up, certainly at Brands, I went around the back of the, I've been around the back of the track, you know, every year for the last few seasons that I've been going and bit by bit, they're making the sort of the pedestrianized areas, if you like, more and more high quality and accessible. 
it still gets a bit muddy and rainy. Obviously, October in, in the UK can be a bit damp and a bit squidgy underfoot, but uh, they're doing, they've done a lot of work because anybody that goes to Brantach, particularly to a BSB race, absolutely has to go to the back of the track around the Hawthorns bend in particular because the bikes are probably going down that steep hill and then up into Hawthorns. Probably they're touching 180, at least I should think, down into there. And it's a quick turn. You know, it's really something to behold. And as you said, Jim, on, on TV, you get to sort of realise how steep and undulating that track is and we all know that tv coverage tends to flatten geography so you can just imagine what it's like when you're actually there so it's a fantastic venue brands as are as i say several of the other tracks that are under the msv ownership now so yeah hats off to them for that that's great i'm glad that they're putting something into the track because there's always just from a formula one perspective people would talk about how bad facilities were at silverstone like how can you have a formula one race there when you the amenities and things that you have is terrible it's kind of like Indianapolis, when MotoGP was there at the time, the track was owned by the Holman family. And I think they they did wonders to redo the track and keep it up to date and make it nicer year by year. But you could tell that there wasn't the money that they had. They didn't have the money to put in it as they used to. And now with Roger Penske owning the facility... I'm sure that it's getting better and will continue to get better because Roger's that kind of a guy. Sort of sounds like a lot like the Palmer guy. Roger yeah. owns teams and cars. And and I'd like to see, I was disappointed because when the Moto America schedule came out, they didn't have a race at Indy. They did last year. And I was hoping they'd have another one this year. But like I said, that's 90 minutes from my house to get there. That's why not. <laughs> next door <laughs> for you. <laughs> for, yeah, for us here in America, that is literally like next door. Uh, I mean, Jonathan Palmer has many business interests and, and, you know, they like a lot of these tracks I've had to do in the modern age. You know, they they spin lots of different things in terms of corporate hospitality, you know, driving days, uh, all sorts of different things. But they're clearly doing OK. And, you know, you go to these tracks, certainly BSB, because of the quality of the organisation, the quality now of most of the tracks that we go to. There's a few tracks in the UK I, I haven't been to, so uh, I have to hold my hand up but yeah, they're obviously they are pumping a lot of money back in and it just makes for a great family day out. And it's always great. I always love BSB because and I'd say this more than any other international kind of sporting event that I've been to because it's still relatively speaking affordable to get in and you do see families there kind of for the whole weekend and that's what the sport needs in terms of that sort of perpetual coming back year on year and bringing the kids grow into adults and they start to pay the gate fee as well so that's that's how it should be really yeah I agree there's nothing more enjoyable than when I get a chance to take my boy to the track with me whether we go to see bikes at Indy or if we go to supercross event or whatever it is it's so good to watch their faces and see that so it's it needs to be a family friendly type of environment always yeah so as as people will will have gathered from uh, listening to previous episodes i am i mean we love our motor gp i watch the world superbike but i do love the bsb and obviously uh, unlike you jim within the uk we can drive to pretty much every track on the calendar within two to three hours you know it doesn't require planes or trains or (laughs) all of these other uh, forms of transport (laughs) you are very lucky in that respect yeah that you can cover all that it seems like to me over there there are those certain tracks snetterton knock hill donington park brands hatch silverstone whether it's a gp or the national circuit take your layout but they're those are always going to be there they're sort of the always tracks and you're always going there and those are the tracks that are there and here in america we've got so many other tracks that bikes could go to or car racing could go to that they don't and it's terrible 
that you know for me i don't particularly like indianapolis as far as the road course concrete walls and motorcycles does not mix in my opinion but if you're going to hold a race there i'm going to go just like there used to be always a super bike race at mid ohio which is about two hours from me the other way so why aren't you there and you know elkhart lake is about eight hours away so easy to get to and you know there's other places around that are even closer there's kentucky place in kentucky that uh, has a road course that you could easily do a uh, motorcycles at and whatnot so it's just kind of i love that you guys use your tracks where like we have so many here and yet we can only produce a nine round schedule for moto america i just think that's terrible we're lucky, I suppose. I mean, we was getting to the race and not talk too long because we mustn't have another two-hour show. But um, <laughs> although it's always tempting to do that, but we're very lucky here in the sense that we've got long-established tracks, and we haven't really had any new tracks here. The one exception to that was a place you might recall from a few years back called Rockingham International Speedway, which was a mm. kind of a, an oval track that was built, and BSB used that on the infield course for a few years, but. It, it never really gelled, to be honest. And although NASCAR came and held a couple of events, I, I think uh, probably back in the early 2000s, this would have been, it, it just didn't catch on. And that was just a few years ago, that was bulldozed, that site. So it doesn't actually exist anymore. So we are a nation of ex-World War II airfield tracks, basically. A lot of yep. the tracks that we have can trace their origins back to that. Even the one that's local to me, literally five miles or 10 miles up the road from me, there's a track called Castle Coombe, which is a very much a national level track because it's quite short and barriers, you know, they're, they're <laughs> really close. So you wouldn't get BSB racing there on safety grounds. But um, again, that's an, another ex-aerodrome from, from World War II. So we were, as a sort of a, a legacy from the war, we ended up with all these places that turned out to be used for screaming around in cars and bikes so that's been you know really good brands was originally a grass track Hmm. way back in the day yeah and uh, yeah for grass tracking so hence why it's up and down the hills makes sense now and thoroughly recommend it to anybody that wants to go and see a bike race get yourself to brands hatch anyway we're here to talk about the races so just to recap I have touched on this at various points on previous episodes, but so this was the final round. We have this love it or hate it showdown system. So I was actually incorrect when I was talking about this a few episodes back. It's now they changed it this year. It's the top eight in the regular season, inverted commas, that go through to the showdown. Uh, it, it was six before that. So they've increased the number of competitors that make it through. But as the showdown rounds, of which there are three or four, I think it's three this year, have gone on. Four riders really kind of came to Brands with a mathematical chance of winning the championship. So I had to go back and do some mathematics on this one just to find out who was where beforehand. So we had Taron McKenzie. Now, he's a McCamsey Yamaha rider. I'm assuming Brits that are listening to the show will be very familiar with BSB. Perhaps some of our US and elsewhere listeners around Europe and elsewhere in the world won't necessarily be so familiar with some of the names. So McKenzie, his father, Niall McKenzie, was quite a famous GP500 rider back in the 80s and was indeed himself a three-time BSB champion in the 1990s. So there's some pedigree there. So Taron's a relatively young rider on the Yamaha. Then we have uh, Jason O'Halloran who's an Australian who's been living and riding in the UK for probably the best part of 10 years, I should think now, as a guest. So he's very well established here. Christian Idden, again, son of a famous racing father. He's on the Vision Track Ducati. So I didn't say that O'Halloran's McKenzie's teammate on the Yamaha team. 
So Eden on the Vision Track Ducati, and then Tommy Bridewell was in fourth place. He's also on the Ducati. He races for the Oxford Products Ducati team. You might recall that team a few years ago. John Hopkins did a few years in the BSB, and he rode the Ducati for that team uh, a few years back, just for the American uh, interest side of it. So anyway, Mackenzie was on. These are a bit weird. These points because of the showdown, they elevate the points up. So Mackenzie was on 1,127. O'Halloran ten points back on 1,117. Then you had Iden on 1,112, and Bridewell on 1,106. So a 21-point spread with three races to go. So it was all certainly all to play for. Not going to talk too much about qualifying and, and practice. I was there Friday through to Sunday. It was kind of typical British autumn weather. Quite chilly, bit damp and drizzly at times, but for the most part fairly dry. Kind of that condition, Jim, where setup becomes really quite important with those slightly mixed conditions and all, always that worry with the quite chilly temperatures and not particularly high tarmac temperature as to what the tyres are going to do. Yeah, it was when I turned on and started watching. I thought, "Ooh, it's it's actually wet," but it it wasn't. It was dry. Everybody was on slicks, and I thought, "Well, that's kind of a kind of a gamble given the way it looked." But I guess that older tarmac kind of looks wet, but isn't wet because when the bikes took off, there was you know nobody was talking about the track being wet, and I thought, "Why well, isn't Whitham saying anything about the condition?" But uh, you know, you were there in the time frame. You knew that it was dry, but to the American tuning in, he was like, mm, why, "Why is it wet here?" But it, yeah, you know, there was no spray, <laughs> and everybody sort of got down to business like right now. So yeah, well, as on. you said earlier on, it, it's a brands. I don't think it's been uh, retarmacked uh, or repaved, as you guys like to say, for for quite some years. There's kind of diff- like a lot of tracks. There's patches that are a bit newer than than others, and it is quite sort of a dark tarmac so it does tend to look a bit damp at the best of times but um, it was one of those weekends where it was there was just a lot of moisture in the air but that's just typical October weather in the UK for us so anyway starting with race one so this one was held on Saturday afternoon so for all of the rounds this year we've had a three race format a Saturday afternoon race a couple of hours after the qualifying and then two races on the Sunday, and they're all full-length races. There's none of this kind of sprint format like we see in World Superbike. They're all kind of 21, 22, 23 lap races, whatever, the as dependent by the, the length of the course. So what we found with these races was that we tended to have kind of similar races in all three events with the BSB. It was very much a pattern. Now, from the beginning of race one, we had really the prime suspects in the championship, which I'm going to say in this particular case was Mackenzie, Bridewell and Iden. Now, O'Halloran was hovering around this all weekend as well. But as I said a few episodes back, he's the guy that's really suffered the most in terms of the showdown format, because in the, uh, again, for the viewers, which is no use on a on a podcast, I'm doing inverted commas signs. <laughs> in the regular season, inverted commas, he was head and shoulders in my view, the best rider, and certainly at the end of that period, had the biggest points lead and a lot of podium credits to go into the showdown. But once the showdown started, everything just unraveled for him. And whilst he was very much in the mix, he was only 10 points back, but he had lost a lot of points to get to that position after three rounds. So he just looked like a guy, and I really like Jason O'Halloran. And I have to say, I, I, although I shouldn't necessarily be sort of saying favourites, I, I was really gunning either for Bridewell to win or, or for Jason O'Halloran because O'Halloran's been around for such a long time, and he's such a solid rider, and he's 
just comes across as a really nice bloke as well. And I think everybody was kind of rooting for him, a little bit like perhaps people are rooting this year for Remy Gardner in Moto2, just because he's been around, he's done his time, he's plugged away, not always on the best machinery, and you know they get their chance and you just want them to, to follow through on it. Yep. So that's kind of where O'Halloran was, but he was just shoulders down, really, and just looked like a man who didn't figure he was going to get the job finally done. That's sad because, I mean, he did start out in the first race. He was on the charge. He was seventh at the beginning. He was working his way up. I mean, admittedly, you had Iden and McKenzie and Skinner were all there to start at at that beginning. And, you know, then Bridewell and Erwin were moving around and having a good tussle. I think I think Bridewell got Erwin at, at Hawthorne, which that's fast. That's yep. at the bottom of the hill, right, I think? Yeah. You got to have it. To, you need to be confident to get through there with it i mean we've seen some other races people who didn't quite manage that correctly and they wound up going down so these guys were definitely not planned but i didn't know that o'halloran had knowing now that he was had been that good earlier because i'm like well o'halloran's not really even close to this it's just it's mckin it's you know it's mckenzie it's it's Irwin, and it's you know bridewell those guys are up front like, oh well, these guys must have been there all year long but apparently not so, yeah, O'Halloran, when the showdown started, still had a big points lead. But as I say, he just had some bad luck. He had a couple of crashes and then just started to go off the boil. That classic thing where you want to peak at the right time. And he just peaked a bit too early. And then, you know, there was a bit of a decline in the form and a bit, bit sad to see, really. Talking of Hawthorns, which, as I say, when you're stood there, it's a breathtaking corner to, to spectate at. Because, as I say, they, they go plunging down the hill under the bridge. And then there's a sort of a slight rise. There must be a huge compression at the bottom of that in terms of physically for the riders. And then there's a short sort of upward bit of hill. And then they're really hard into the into the right there and heavy on the brakes as well. So it's it's a tough place to, to pass and it's a worse place to crash. So on lap four, a rider who's not one of the more necessarily well-known riders, but all of these guys are super quick. So a lad called Josh Owens, he unfortunately went down at Hawthorns and it was quite a heavy crash, which actually put him out for the rest of the weekend. He was up and on his feet looking a bit battered and bruised, but I think the bike was damaged quite significantly and they're not one of the bigger teams. So I think they kind of had to given that it was the last round i think they just packed up and decided that was that was it but he is reconfirmed for that team for next season so it's all, all fine <laughs> it's just that um there was a bit too much crash damage there to continue yeah it looked like he tried to get off of the motorcycle in the self-preservation mode <laughs> like yeah there's a there's a fence there's something immovable coming fast and that was a big big get off it was a big to do that's for sure you know tore up some barriers some of the foam barrier that was there and yeah what i thought was interesting because i've never seen this except for one time in the u.s you had a safety car that runs around with the motorcycles yeah. i thought well, that's really interesting the only time i've seen that tried here in the here in the u.s is at the daytona interspeedway when they'd have like the daytona 200 they would run a, a safety car i think schwantz actually drove one of the safety cars for their one of those years but I never did like that idea just from the fact that it isn't like you have a pace car leading a bunch of Formula One cars or stock cars or Indy cars or something like that or BTCC stuff. It's a lot harder, I think, to try to ride a motorcycle at the pace of what a car can do. You, the acceleration of the bike is greater than the car because yeah. there's just less weight. It was it just seemed awkward, but they they handled it really well. I mean, these guys are obviously used to it. But yeah. to me, looking in, it was very strange to see this car buzzing around in front of the bikes and then 
well, I think one of the things too is it, to me is I think it's very easy if you're in auto racing and there's a safety car, it's very easy for your crew to talk to you and tell you, Hey, lights out on the safety car. We're going green in one lap. You don't have that communication and it's all got to be visual. It, I, they, they, I know Whittem made a comment that the, the lights that are on the safety car are turned off. And then, you know, that means that you're going to go racing. Well, you given that this track goes up and down as much as it does, I'm shocked that the guys in the back would be able to tell that those lights had been turned off. And yeah. I expected more chaos on the restarts than what actually happened. But it was impressive to see. It was definitely different. And unique. Yeah, I'm trying to trying to think how many seasons they've had a safety car in play in BSB. It's quite a while. I mean, again, one of the things that I think is really great about MSV, you know, in the sporting direction and the technical direction of, of, of British Superbike is that it is very forward thinking. And, and they tend to do things a bit before the international series do them if you, if you know what i mean so one of the things that sometimes frustrates me a bit with moto gp and dawna is that they are a little bit inclined to follow the leader formula one sometimes with technology and rules i think and formats whereas in bsb they tend to be really quite forward thinking on this so for example a few years ago to try and mitigate the risk of rising costs and teams not being able to continue they were very early adopters of a quite a stringent ecu kind of package and a big reduction in rider aids mm. so in the bsb class for example there is no traction control now conversely and interestingly in the stock series because most of these road bikes come out with all the bells and whistles now in terms of anti-wheelie and anti this and that and so on and so forth those guys run full electronics but in the bsb there's very very limited indeed uh, electronics and it has been to the betterment of the series in my view there was a bit of an outcry when it first came in to say well it's not safe but at the end of the day even the top riders were, were saying well look i'm in control of the throttle and i prefer to be in control of the throttle so so bsb sort of took a different direction and interestingly world superbike has not adopted that same policy so bsb is I like it in the sense that it's a bit different to the way some of the other championships are run. There's a, a few differentiators in there, which just make it a bit different, as well as the fact, obviously, it's on running on different tracks. So, yeah, and, and safety car is just one example of, of one of the things that they brought in and has generally never been a problem. I wish that MotoGP would get away from as much electronics as that's on the bikes that they have. A rudimentary system is acceptable, in my opinion, but I do think that the standard magneti morelli system they have is a wee bit too intrusive i want a little bit more in the rider's hands mm. which is which you could see that these guys have it in control especially with you know a couple of the other races just some of the black marks that are just being laid i mean that's that's part of the enjoyment as a fan is to see this big black mark coming off and you don't see that too much in moto gp it, it's there but it's definitely not very prevalent yeah 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 well i I wasn't going to talk too much about support classes on this podcast again just in the interest of time but in the pirelli superstock 1000 series uh, again there's some very well-known riders in that category billy mcconnell uh, might be a name that's familiar to you again he's been racing in the uk for some years in uh, hutcherson you know famous tt rider he's in there so there's some big names in there and you know those bikes are fully electronic up to the hilt because as i say they're road bike based and i was stood up at druids for their race on the sunday now that's the the tight hairpin just after the first downhill plunge through paddock hill bend so off the start okay. finish line down the steep hill through paddock hill up a little hill and then into the tight hairpin which is yeah would be the slowest corner on the track and 
Billy McConnell, who has been riding the Rich Energy BMW this year. They're actually switching to Yamaha next year, but he was on the BMW. And boy, do that guy trust his electronics. I mean, we're talking Casey Stoner levels of crack the throttle and let, let, let the ECU do the, <laughs> do the job, which is not to say that I think it's an, un, an unskillful thing to do. It's, it's a bravery-based system, I guess, when you've got that level of electronic intervention helping you. He's a super sport 600 champion of past Billy McConnell. So that guy can ride a bike, but he just happens to be in a class where there's a lot of electronics allowed. The noise that the traction control was making as he gunned it out of uh, out of Druids was, yeah, impressive, let's just say. <laughs> um, but overall, I'm not a big fan of electronics, if, if I'm honest. And like you, Jim, I, I wish there was less in MotoGP and World Superbike for that matter. But I suppose the problem is, you know, the gene is out of the bottle and it's very hard to pop him or her back in again. Oh, yeah. Agreed. I don't think we're ever going to go back to it. The argument can be made if you would have left the traction control systems on in MotoGP, you wouldn't have these hideous wings sprouted all over the bike. It'd be so you got to be careful for what you wish for because you may have a law of unintended consequences, I think you said, Yeah, always applies. Always applies. Anyway, as you say, we had a safety car. Um, Because Owens had been into the barrier uh, at at Hawthorne's quite hard, and that is such a sketchy corner that they have this rector cell fencing, as you you, uh, noted, Jim, and he dislodged some of that, given the, the severity of that impact. So it took them a few laps to get that sorted out. So the lights went green again, if you like, I think on lap eight. The thing about BSB that I was also going to mention is that we have a field of very experienced competitors there. And with BSB, with obviously some exceptions, if you talk about your Tom Sykes, your Johnny Ray, uh, Crutchlow, there are obviously riders that make the jump across to the World Series, whether it be Superbike or, or to, to a much lesser extent, the Grand Prix paddock. But there are only a limited number of bikes available in those series. And more often than not, you need to be taking some fairly serious wads of cash with you to to get those rides and i don't think i'm on sketchy ground to say that we tend to see an awful lot of spaniards and italians who are just very well supported because those are sports that are well loved in those countries and or they have international superstars and we don't need to mention the names that mean that there is a lot of sponsorship interest and therefore there's a lot of talent coming up through so in one way regrettably but in another way not by the time the riders in the british series get up to stock thousand and and then potentially up to bsb they tend to stay there for quite a long time because it's a it's a great series to race in i guess for the top guys it's it's reasonably well paid work and to go across to the other series is very difficult or impossible in some cases and i'll talk about that a bit more towards the end the benefit of that is that you have a very experienced field of competitors who know the tracks very well because they've been racing for years and so you tend not to get lots and lots of really sort of huge crash crashes or stupid behavior like we've become used to talking about on this podcast in in recent weeks with obviously the much younger competitors the the lower average age even a motor gp level that you that you have in the grand prix paddock so the, the races are very hard they're fast but they tend to be fairly well behaved i don't know if you sort of saw that over the course of the weekend there were a couple of big crashes and one that stood out at the end of the final race which was you know a bit due to somebody losing their kind of um way in terms of what they were doing potentially but uh, what, what what was your thought on the sort of the level of competition and the quality of the competition in that way the the quality of competition is amazing i mean the guys at the front are wringing the necks out of a thousand cc superbike without question it's nicer to see two guys really just slamming it out than it is to see Benyaya run off in a MotoGP race. These guys, I think, have 
who this is going to sound really bad, but I'll say it anyway. I think they have a little more respect for each other and a little more respect for the circuits that they're riding on. Yeah, I agree. And I think some of that is because you guys, or not, not, not specifically like England, but the Irish guys, some of the other other Harrison Hickman, they go to the island, and I think the island smacks you in the face and says you need to respect everything that's going on because of the danger that is posed by the island. The, these guys have all grown up sort of with that. And, you know, I think some of the younger guys look up to guys like Hickman and to Brooks and to, you know, I keep probably, you know, Hutchie, uh, the, the McGinnis. Um, I think all yep. these guys kind of look up to them and they see how they have done, how they have conducted themselves. And you, these guys are conducting themselves in the way that has happened before, which I think is a great way for them to sort of honor the guys from the past, yet still ride hard and enjoy what they're doing and provide massive amounts of entertainment for us as spectators to see. And, you know, and I think there's just a bitter history there. And like you said, there's only X number of tracks and you go to them all the time. Everyone sort of knows where it is and where it isn't. It, it's again not to sound bad or harsh here but it's kind of like when i was club racing we had about five or six tracks that we went to all the time and we knew where the bad places were and you just you know everybody's a weekend warrior you don't stuff somebody at this particular turn because it's not going to be pretty all the way around and i think these guys are sort of in that same vein because i know a lot of maybe not these guys in bsb but i know a lot of guys that ride the roads they have a jo- day job as well so you yeah. you there's a different you your mindset's different to begin with the other thing about it jim as well and, and i was like um ex-show host and friend of the show dave neil who i've mentioned previously uh, now works in the british superbike paddock he spent very kindly spent a bit of time with me uh, on the saturday and, and so we were able to walk around a little bit and with some exceptions the bsb pit is uh, generally quite free and open it depends from circuit to circuit because some of these places are not that big or they've got sort of smallish paddock areas and then the the rest of the support series are in a located somewhere else but more often than not you've got an open paddock so you can walk around quite freely and you, you're in amongst the riders and they're always very courteous and friendly and you just get that that insight that sort of access to see the riders having a laugh with each other i mean it would be naive to suggest that all of these guys are best friends all of the time because clearly they're fierce competitors and stuff does happen from time to time and rivalries can get a bit out of control but you know these are not people that are jumping on private jets you know with various entourages following them around you know they're not millionaire in terms of pay packets and stuff like that so there's a kind of i suppose it's a bit like club club racing on on you know on adrenaline really there's a sort of an honesty and a joyousness about the bsb paddock across all of the classes but even in bsb which is obviously the main ticket event which most people are there to see so there's just that general feeling of respect and camaraderie allied to the fact as we keep saying that some of these tracks are i i I don't want to use the term dangerous but certainly we don't want to be crashing at certain corners and they are risky and there's a level of respect between the riders that tends to keep things within certain boundaries so uh, again i think that's why i'm such a lover of, of of bsb because you have those two elements together quite hard tracks as opposed to the wide open spaces and we don't talk about green runoff areas in bsb very often because it's normally it's a it's a two-foot patch of grass followed by an armco barrier so people tend to respect track limits for that reason <laughs> so yeah 
So I think also you're you kind of danced around it, but these guys are way more relatable. Not that the guys like Mark Marquez and the other guys, Quattraro, aren't relatable, but they're as they say in Formula One, there's the haves and the have yachts. Yeah. And the the guys over there, deservedly so, are making huge money to do what they're doing. At least the elite guys are. And whether you like it or not, money changes you. It just does. I've known people yep. who I've grown up with who either inherited money or made it big, and they're not the same people they were when you knew them. It's just how it is. So. It's inevitable, yeah. But they are totally relatable, as you say. But I've said it before, and I will say it over and over again. They could seriously improve that series even more than it's already great, which it is. And we love MotoGP. It is the absolute pinnacle in every respect. But it's too elitist in terms of fan access, in my view. And I don't care. You know, I'm not interested in having my face on a fan wall that just gets superimposed on a TV image. I, I would like to meet some of these people and just have a couple of moments to, to sort of, you know, be a fan. That's that's why mm-hmm. we tune in. So yeah. I, I think Dawn really could improve in that area. Anyway. We're still on race one. Um, so by lap 12, Christian Idden, and this was a problem for him kind of all weekend, really. He was getting into serious rear tyre trouble. Uh, the Vision Track Ducati, and specifically that team, that bike, so that's the Paul Bird Motorsport team. So you've got Idden and Josh Brooks, who was the champion last year on that bike. They've been a little bit all at sea this year. Uh, Idden out of the two has by far and away been the best performer brooks there, there were some changes and again this is more your area than mine jim but there were some changes to the engine and more specifically the electronics around en- engine braking strategies i think and brooks whilst he had one or two rounds where it looked a bit more hopeful he's been really wallowing down in the sort of 10 to 15 position a, a lot of the races this year he, he has got better as the year has gone on but he just hasn't been able to figure out a way of getting that as i understand it a way of getting that bike into the turns in the way that last year's bike with a slightly different engine configuration well not engine configuration but the electronics around the engine and a couple of internal changes i think so he has really struggled whereas christian Iden, i think is one of these riders like we tend to see in certain categories where seem to be dogged by tire issues later on in the race i don't know if this might be related to the fact that Idan's an ex, he's a supermoto sort of rider so he's used to riding the bike on the rear but whether that plays into some of his issues i don't know but certainly by brooks is getting, an aussie though right so he should yeah, be fairly yeah. confident throwing it around on the back but if i, I you know i can't speak for brooks because i didn't see much of him on the tv but it seemed like Idan had that problem where like there's not the right amount of weight transfer going the other way like it's too pointy on the front and so the back is always in motion which he rides well especially now knowing now that he's a supermoto guy he can definitely get it sideways and can ride it off the corner that way problem is is that he doesn't go into the corner that way so maybe they're maybe the engine braking strategy there that's going on is too aggressive or it's it in some way prevents the bike from going out of line to benefit him, at least for Iden. And it seems like the very little I've seen, Iden's style is very different than the way Josh Brooks rides. Completely, change, they're yeah. like polar yeah. opposites. It's sort of like yeah. how does Rossi ride a motorcycle versus how does Quattro ride a motorcycle? And to give you a relative MotoGP concept, and it's like it's not working for for Brooks with whatever they had, they have done and. It doesn't appear to be a suspension type of thing where you put a little more rebound, change the spring, do those kind of things to change what it 
what the bike how the bike feels it's down to how the motor develops its power or the power is taken away with bridewell on the oxford products ducati he's had a much better season and that bike runs k-tech suspension for example unlike the the paul bird motorsport bikes or the vision track ducatis so there are some differences there and bridewell it's a single single bike team but he has had much the better of the season with a single bike team you're going one way with one rider and you're not trying to benefit the others and if it is you know and there's not to say that k-tech doesn't have a better suspension strategy that works more in line with how the bike wants to slow down so that could be as the bike wants to slow down does it have a more progressive rebound that comes in so that the back end doesn't jump up is it do they have a little different valving dampening thing or is it just that bridewell can ride that way and it works for him it's always been the big question. It's sort of like in MotoGP, Honda used used to always have Showa suspension because that's what they ha- they own they own Showa. Even they have stopped and said, "Nope, we're now riding on Olins because that is sort of the de facto standard." So suspension plays a big part in it, but it's more how does that? Do you have enough knobs and and, and gizmos and trickery on your suspension to mold it into package that gels nicely with how the power is? comes on and how the power comes off as you enter and exit each of the turns and as you pointed out earlier on with a lot of the uk tracks you, you know they're up and down quite bumpy you know if you take a place like thruxton i mean that that is hideous if you go back and watch any race from the past few years with, with the superbikes in particular around the back part of that track which is the fastest track in the country as well the bikes are hopping and skipping everywhere and i'm talking on the edge of the tire at 160 170 miles an hour you know so the suspension is is so i mean it's crucial in every series but these are not billiard flat moto gp style tracks that we're talking about here so clearly suspension is going to play a, a huge role in all of that but anyway Iden, who was in third place at this point but was just gradually dropping back and as we would find over the course of this the, the three races it was really bridewell and, and taron mckenzie that were duking it out out front mckenzie what really impressed me about him all weekend was that he was just utterly fearless given he did have a points lead but as i say going into this first race it was only 10 points so i mean there was every opportunity that a mistake would be very very costly for him and he just duked it out with bridewell all the way to the end and in the end mckenzie took the win from bridewell with Iden in third O'Halloran, I think, did come through in fourth in the end, but again, just wasn't ever really in that battle after the first few laps were out of the way. You had Pete Hickman, who you mentioned earlier on, who's had a very solid year this year, probably his best season, I would think, in terms of aggregate results across the whole of the season in fifth place. And then Andy Irwin, who's one of the two Irwin brothers that race in BSB, he came in 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 sixth place. So going into race two which was on sunday lunchtime mckenzie could win the championship if if he could win the race mckenzie going into the first um was straight into the lead from the, from the off uh, but there were a couple of sort of uh, what i like to call banzai passes by tommy bridewell who kind of made surtees turn I, I won't go into too much detail for people that aren't familiar with the track in terms of trying to place where all of these bends are but it's a kind of sweeping uh, on the brakes left hand turn which goes steeply uphill once you're through the apex and bridewell kind of owned that corner all weekend he was pulling off some some seriously audacious moves around there and on this first or second lap of race two he got through and passed both Iden and and Mackenzie at, at that corner. And then and kind he of sort bol- of laid down some really yeah, great he laps. Bolted. Yeah, he, yeah he, he he, was- I thought I thought Bridewell had this at this point because he was just, he, the bike was 
compared to how the bike was at Saturday and how it moved around, they calmed it down significantly. So there was obviously some suspension tweaking that had happened, uh, maybe little different choice of tire. Air pressure is crucial in a Pirelli. That's for sure. I can tell you that straight up. And you make those differences and you feel good. Or it was maybe he just felt like my only chance to beat McKenzie is just to literally get out and just go. Either way, he looked super strong. And I was like, okay, if anybody's going to beat Bridewell, they're going to have to work for it, for sure. Yeah, and Tommy, this isn't a criticism by any means. I'd say he's one of my favorite guys. And I was really sort of, I'd really love to see Tommy Bridewell win the championship. He's one quite local to me. He's the closest, probably the closest rider in terms of where I live. He's he's in a town called Devizes, which is about 30 miles from here. But, and I say, this is not a criticism. I think it's a, an, uh, an observation that's backed up by knowledge. And if you go back, you, you see it for yourself. He's very much a, a setup rider in the sense that if he hits a sweet spot, he's untouchable. But if he's just not quite there in terms of the setup, he, I think, not to say he struggles, but he's just not going to ride around a problem like some other riders are famous for doing. And given his history with his brother, which I don't know if you know the story, we won't go into it here, but he's just not a rider that's going to throw crazy moves up the inside without knowing that he's going to make it out. And the person that or people that he's passing are going to make it out with him. So he is not a rider that you see doing outrageous moves. So he worked so hard on setup. And as you say, Jim, he got passed in the early part of the race too. And you thought, wow, he's going to go. And he very quickly pulled out about a second or so lead. Yeah, it, it, that was the biggest lead I think anybody had all weekend was what Broadwell had there because yeah. it was crazy. I think he's not metronomic like Quattraro or Lorenzo, but he was in a groove and I didn't know if anybody was going to catch him or not. Indeed. Well, well, the, the next thing that happened of, of note was that uh, Dean Harrison, who's another famous road rider uh, who, who race, race, races at all of the BSB rounds, just, I think, you know, there's this kind of idea that you just keep your, keep your eye in. And obviously with the last couple of years with COVID, we haven't had TT Northwest. So these guys have had to find other ways to go about it. But Dean Harrison has raced pretty much in BSB for the last few years, fairly solidly. But again, our favourite corner down at Hawthorns, he had a, a little bit of dispute with Bjorn Esmond in terms of who owned that corner. So if I remember rightly, because obviously it's a few weeks ago, I think Dean Harrison took the inside line. Yes. It was, was kind of level. Uh, and Esmond kind of just squeezed him a bit, whether he didn't quite know that he was there. I think that, I think it was one of those. It was a totally sort of innocent racing incident deal. But the two guys, again, a bit like uh, Josh Owens had done the day before, went careering into the barrier, which at Hawthorns, the barrier is quite a long way away. I'm going to say there's probably a good 30 feet. Uh, but gravel, not at 160. <laughs> but at that speed, yeah. And particularly with the bikes lent over like they are, so they tend to tumble. And the riders tend to do the same thing. So it's that shocking thing with motorsport of all categories where you get so used to these vehicles looking to go fast. And then the braking is probably, in some respects, more impressive than the acceleration in a lot of these series. And it's only when you see one of these things go out of control that you realize the sheer amount of velocity and energy that's involved. These things reach reach the barriers right fast, you know, and, and unfortunately, the riders hit the barriers pretty hard there but it is very well protected that corner now because over the years there have been some nobody you know seriously seriously injured there but over the last few years you've had people like uh, shaky burn uh, Stuart easton leon haslam had they've all had monster crashes there you know going upside down at 
god knows what speed mid-air into the barriers so yeah it's not a place to go down i don't know if you had an opinion on that crash but it looked like a racing incident i thought today. i thought racing incident just two guys wanted the same piece of ground and it both of them went down as a result if i was going to apportion any blame not having really seen it and only having one camera angle i would give a little bit of blame to dean and i think dean knows better and i think he just either frustrated or trying to get to the front and couldn't do it and Espen was in his way and he kind of thought he could maybe bully him a little bit and it just didn't work out because because when Dean got up he kind of had that look of like not necessarily my bad but hey you know sorry kind of a thing going on in the end racing incident no blame to either guy both of them got back up walked away it's all you really want to see then what back up front at this point I think McKenzie got his head down and said I'm going after Bridewell, right? And he certainly did. You also had a little confrontation up at Druids again between the two Kawasaki's and Andy Irwin on on the BMW. So yeah, didn't Irwin Irwin like got sat up, right? Is that yeah, it's instance? one of those gnarly turns where you're arriving at high speed, normally slightly sideways, and it's slightly banked. Uh, well, not, it's, it's quite heavily banked actually, I suppose. Uh, the Druids turn, so it does invite late braking maneuvers and people chucking it up the inside. I, I'm not quite sure, but certainly Skinner and Irwin did kind of come together and they tangled, and it was one of those awkward kind of handlebar locking kind of incidents, and they went down. And unfortunately, Skinner's on the Kawasaki. Skinner's teammate uh, Lee Jackson just had nowhere to go and just ran in ran into one of the bikes and so all three of them were down at that point which was a a, a bit of a shame but the next thing of note that happened was around about lap 12 so about halfway into the race we started to get the spots of rain flags coming out and i think this is goes a little bit to what i was talking about with with tommy bridewell where mckenzie with a a little bit of kind of mental rain on the visor and I, I was stood in the paddock uh, when this race was going on and I could feel it slightly drizzling on, onto me so Mackenzie just saw, kind of saw that as his opportunity bearing in mind win the race win the championship and he just suddenly closed the gap on Bridewell and, and got through so I, I thought that that was more a case of Mackenzie going for it rather than Bridewell you know slowing down necessarily but it is that nasty sort of gnarly situation that you find yourself in where spots of rain on the visor what do you do do you push or do you take it a little bit easier toughest question for a guy on a motorcycle is spots of rain because it's just what what is it and you don't know and the worst thing is is like it's very weird i've had these races in club what's funny is you start to become your own weatherman you will take time and you start looking up because you're trying to figure out is it is is there more dark clouds coming is it going to be rain because the next time i hit turn one it could be a deluge and i I'm going to go skittering off into the to the gravel. It's funny how much your mind will start to try to figure out what's going on. And I think the very best have enough mental capacity left over to do those kind of calculations where people like me can make that calculation, but not ride fast at the same time while trying to do yeah. those calculations. Can I say one thing about McKinsey? He yeah. owned Paddock Hill Bend all weekend long. Like that boy yeah. was so fast and so confident through that turn. It was amazing to watch him go through there. It didn't matter which of the races it was, but when he went by Bridewell, it was a bold move, fast, quick, took Bridewell to the edge, gave him room at the very end of it. It was just well done. Uh, who 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 owned Surtees, did you say? I, was it Bridewell uh, owned Bridewell. that? Yeah. yeah. If, yeah. if Bridewell owned Surtees, then, then McKenzie owned Paddock Hill Bend, period. Yeah. So I, I was yeah. impressed because that's a tricky um, corner. Yeah, the entry. I mean, they they come down the main. Well, to call it straight uh, is not really quite correct. 
it's a fast sort of shallow bend really and it's super bumpy down that down past the pits as well so you kind of arrive at enormous speed and with the bike kind of making shapes uh you know so to get an inside or an outside but normally an inside pass done at paddock hill and it, as i say it looks deep on tv trust me when you're there it's like dropping off i guess it would be somewhat similar to the corkscrew i suppose which looks steep on telly but it's probably almost like a sheer cliff face in in real life they really it do drop off steep. paddock hill it is, yeah. it is dramatically so, steep. You don't really get how far they drop in that short span. I think they drop over 30 feet and in about yeah. 10 feet of distance. It's it's incredibly steep. So, as you say, Jim, McKenzie made it through. And then around the back of the track, as they sort of come back towards the last third of the, the circuit, back towards the pits, there's a corner there called Sterling, which is uh, is a... Uh, another i mean there isn't really a slow corner other than druids at, at brands hatch it's all pretty much flat out sort of stuff but it's a track which mckenzie has some previous at which we'll talk about in a minute but he managed to get a big rear end slide coming out of there and so much so that bridewell actually rear-ended him with a quite a big puff of smoke off his tire how they both stayed up i'm amazed yeah that was one of the things you just don't see that kind of thing in MotoGP because the electronics take care of it. There was, that was just, and the back end just laying the black and McKenzie had to roll off and he shut it like completely off and Bridewell was wrong place, wrong time and just couldn't move the Ducati over. Cause I think even probably that Penegale probably doesn't turn very well compared to say like the Yamaha and it turns like a truck. I know the older V-twin Ducatis, I've ridden those, they turn like a truck. And I'm sure that is probably still an inherent hindrance to them. And Bridewell, I thought for sure Bridewell was going up the back tire and over, but they 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 survived it. It was spectacular, but it just showed you how hard McKenzie was riding to stay ahead of Bridewell. Like he was, he had to be on every bit of it to be sure that he wasn't getting passed. I think that was kind of a pivotal moment because I think both of them sort of cooled off a little bit after that. And they kind of just, not to steal thunder here, but rode home. Right, one or, right, well, one did, get back, did, did get back past McKenzie the following lap at that same turn in actual fact. But um, yeah, true, heading into yeah. the last lap, he... I mean, Bridewell won a few races this year, so it's not that he's kind of desperate to win in that sense. But I mean, all these guys want to win no matter what every race, don't they? But he took a fairly sort of defensive line in the run into the final turn and he just sent himself a little bit wide at the last turn with that slightly overly defensive line which is not to say it's a criticism because he just wanted to win and he was just trying to cover that inside overtake but it just had that effect that it just sent him a little bit wide at the turn and and Mackenzie was able to to kind of get the cut through and just basically out drag him to the line so that's how it finished really so it was same result as race one but in this particular case it was job done. done and again just an outstanding performance by by mckenzie who put everything on the line all race long and as you say nearly sent himself off into the trees on one or two occasions particularly that that one at sterling's and yeah just his whole approach really i thought was just uh, outstanding in terms of just going for the wins totally confident man on a motorcycle he that just shows you you know the ducati may be faster but that yamaha had sort of more mid-range grunt or was able to maximize the traction out of the corners better than the ducati and mckenzie rode the wheels off of it great ride by him and that was really a pretty titanic struggle between the two i mean we really haven't seen one of those type races 
back and forth a lot for quite some time, at least not in MotoGP that I can think of. It was it was more along those heady days of Schwantz Rainey where neither man wanted to give up, and I think that's kind of what made that race yeah. special. In one way, from a fan's point of view, it was a, a little bit of a shame that it was championship decided with one race still remaining but because you know it's nice to go into the final race with it still all to be decided but I suppose from McKenzie's point of view it was a great relief to uh, to have the job done and so he yep 2021 British Superbike champion 25 years after his father achieved the same accolade which was kind of neat. Yeah, impressive. Is There's very few times that father and son accomplish similar goals. You know you yeah you can count on what, what Roberts and Kenny Roberts Jr. world champions McKinsey and his boy now British Superbike champions it's it's rare I mean it's rare in any sport that a son of a famous athlete succeeds in that same sport it's it's just not normal generally and uh no and for them to do it it's, it's fantastic good, good for yep. the family you know something they'll never forget absolutely so we're going to come to the final race in a moment but one of the things i was able to do over the course of the weekend and as again i've, I've mentioned on previous episodes this is something i'm really going to look to ramp up over the off season as much as possible with a few people that have said that they're going to give us some time to talk and certainly as we get into the season proper next year we're going to try and toss up as many people as we can and get some interviews but i was able to have a chat at brands on the saturday evening with a very nice chat called phil spencer now phil is the founder and the team principal of a team called true heroes racing they run bikes in the ducati tri options which is a basically it's all panigale's racing uh you've got the likes of john mcginnis chris walker some famous names in there a very very high quality field of bikes uh, they also run a bike in the pirelli superstock thousand category as well and they are essentially racing military veterans people that have come out of the service wounded in one way or another, either physically or mentally. Uh, and Phil, who's still a serving military person in the Navy himself, had a, this idea a few years ago to set up a team and bring in uh, ex-military people to have a go at racing. So these are not people that have necessarily, and certainly in the case of the three riders that they had on the team this year, I don't believe any of them had any previous racing experience, either prior to or during their military careers, let's say. So they've come in and have arrived in this team which is there to help support them in achieving new things in their post-military new lives if you like so i had the uh, the opportunity and, and the honor quite frankly to have a chat with phil and we're going to catch up with phil again during next season it's kind of nice the symmetry we're recording this on thursday the 11th of november it's armistice day in the uk and i think it might be veterans day in the us jim yeah that's right yeah it didn't get changed to vet it was always armistice day here until uh eisenhower changed it in the 50s to veterans day because gotcha. he wanted the day to uh, okay he wanted the day to be a way for all military veterans to be honored armistice day was more world war ii so yeah, it, yeah. It, it, okay. yes, but sorry for the american history lesson folks no the the, the, so the date symmetry with it being armistice and this being a military kind of base team just lined up nicely for me on the way it's turned out so I recorded this, as I say, on, well, I say Saturday, it was Saturday afternoon, so I've cleaned up the order as best I can, but there was the uh, the sidecar championship going on out on track at the time when I was sat in the truck uh, chatting to Phil, so there is a bit of uh, droning noise in the background, which I'll apologise, but hopefully it will be informative. Uh, so uh, without further ado, this is myself talking to Phil Spencer from True Heroes Racing. 
Hello, this is Richard from Motopod. I'm at Brands Hatch for the BSB showdown this weekend. As well as what's going on with BSB, of course, there are all of the support classes racing this weekend, and I'm delighted to be joined by Phil Spencer from True Heroes Racing. Phil, let's jump straight in. Could you tell us a little bit about the classes that you're involved with and how long you've been going? Yeah, so uh, True Heroes Racing was founded back in 2012. I'm a serving member of the Royal Navy in the UK uh, and I formed it to offer the unique opportunity of being involved in a competitive motorcycle team for wounded, injured and sick UK service personnel and veterans. Back in 2012, the UK, uh, alongside other nations, were still engaged in combat operations in Afghanistan. So we had a large number of, of injured UK military uh, service personnel coming back to the UK, some with quite considerable life-changing injuries and needing to have a new focus and, and a new goal to, to get involved with. And, and that was where the concept of the, the team came from. We started back in, in 2012, one bike, one rider, uh, moved into the British Superbike Championships in 2013 and have expanded year on year after uh, ever since, um, offering more and more opportunities for, for that demographic that we're, we're supporting, the, the wounded, injured and sick, yep. UK service personnel and veterans to be engaged in what is a unique organisation. And how, how do you go about kind of recruiting then riders into this team? Because with it being from a military background, those aren't necessarily going to be people that have been racing in the past or perhaps some of them might have done it at clever level perhaps but did you how do you go about actually finding yeah, talent, talented riders it's an interesting um, scenario that we find ourselves in because being in the British Superbike Championships this is the highest level competition in the UK and therefore the riders have to have an ability to be able to to even get on the grid so in the early days with our disabled riders um, certain challenges were set to us by the organizers to make sure that they were safe and most importantly they were fast enough to compete yeah um, and, and they were and, and it's, it's as the organization's grown we've attracted individuals from sort of the veteran community who have, as you said, ridden before, some not necessarily raced before, mm -hmm. and we've taken them through a program to, to build them up to being racing. But also we, we engage with the, the military teams themselves, the representative teams that represent the Army, the Navy and the Air Force who do compete against each other. You know, the, the, the three forces do compete on the on the battlefield, whether it's a rugby field, <laughs> a football field, a cricket pitch, well now they compete on a motorcycle racetrack as well. Yeah. Um, so we work with those organisations as well to see if there's any individuals that would be useful because ultimately I can't run an organisation to offer opportunities to the demographic that we work with without putting bikes out and you can't put bikes out if you haven't got a rider um, yeah. as we said to compete at the British Super Bikes you need to have an element of skill and ability and to be do here. you find that you've got a, a queue of people that want to get involved with the team from a riding perspective uh, yes or? yeah yeah I, I, it, the the whole scenario whether it's People who want to, everyone thinks they can ride, but not necessarily uh, everyone can, at, particularly at this level. And that's why we have a sort of uh, sister partnership. We've got a grassroots program where we are taking individuals, particularly in the rehabilitation system, and taking them on the track for the first time, teaching them to race, getting them through the race license and, and putting them on the grid. So we build that program alongside our front of house, high profile stuff here at BSB. And in a way, we are growing our BSB riders of the future as well. So yeah. in house. Yeah. Um, really working and um, working with that group of, of individuals that are going through rehabilitation so it, it, there's that aspect from the riding but the bigger piece you know the everyone's as, as important as one another in our team you know you go to a more mainstream race team and it's very rider focused very 
results focused mm -hmm. and everyone in the background gets lost and they're just there to make sure that the bike goes out and, and etc etc they even all do a really important job but they're not as high profile or as, as, as class as important as the rider on the bike for us the riders facilitate what the organization is able to do for other individuals sure, yeah. um, so yeah. everyone is as important and the role that everyone plays is as important as, well as each other um, so from that perspective you know it's a little bit of a different mindset for people to, to get their heads around when they, when they do ride for us it's worth pointing out just for the benefit of the motorpod listeners i was watching the ducati try options race earlier today and i think you've had one of your best results yeah uh, yeah so um we've we finished 10th and 15th so both bikes in that class uh, in the points which is is phenomenal because like you were saying earlier both of our riders are not um, you know, long-term motorcycle racers like a lot of everybody else in the paddock. You know, a lot of the the, the uh, riders here have been racing since they were sort of five or six on the mini motos and built themselves up. Whereas neither of ours have, have mm. done that. And that's um, in a field of thirty thirty odd bikes. 30 yeah, odd bikes. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. these guys are quick yeah yeah really yeah quick. you know and and we're all you know i'm not selling it even more but we're also on the older bikes so we're giving away a little bit of power to them but we did have a little bit of luck on our side it was at sketchy conditions and we made the right tire choice some others didn't make the right tire choice but cream rises to the top in the sketchy yeah, conditions yeah that's it yeah. you know uh but certainly for mike our our second rider this was his best ever finish on the on the ducati you know finishing in the points was was brilliant for yeah him. fantastic so what was your motivation to, to get involved in this then, Phil? Because you're the team principal, um, so you're um, you're the man with the name above the door, so to speak. It was a crazy idea I had back in 2012. So because you've got an engineering background in, yes, the, in, the, in yes. the Royal so Navy. In the Royal Navy, yeah, I'm yeah. Uh, I'm in the what they call the Fleet Air Arm, which is the Royal Navy's Air Force. Um, so I, I joined the Navy in 1993, uh, and I'm still serving now. The first 18, 19 years of my career, I was a Harrier engineer, working mm -hmm. on the Harrier jump jets, uh, and that's what I went out to Afghanistan with. We, we took the aircraft out there to provide close air support to the troops on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, and we were based at Kandahar uh, Airfield, which, as you can imagine, um, a military airbase with billions of pounds of equipment was very well protected in comparison to the troops right out at the coalface you know in the fobs and, and forward operating bases etc out there yeah. so you know i refer to it quite pegly as the Kandahar was a holiday camp compared to where some of these guys and girls were, were based at the time so i came back from afghanistan in, in one piece uh, others were less fortunate and it gave me a drive to do something to support others who were less fortunate to me so i did the classic military charity thing started raising money for those and I did that through the motorcycling community and, and eventually ended up organizing VIP hospitality days through contacts I built up here in the BSB so started bringing guys and girls who were going through rehab out to the BSB as a VIP okay. spending time in the superbike team hospitality units etc etc and it just kind of dawned on me one day is rather than using the sport purely as a as a hospitality event why can't we be here competing and use the sport to aid even further and that's what it did so in 2012 we got to a position where I was able to form True Heroes Racing and um, like I say in 2013 we brought the first disabled rider into the British Superbike Championships um, there's a young lad called Murray Hambro um, he'd lost both his legs in an IED in Afghanistan mm -hmm. and we raced here in the Triumph Triple Challenge on Triumph Daytonas and um, the rest is history, yeah. really. You know, the, the fans have got behind us, the organisers, everybody. It, it, um, it's been great. The support from the public and everybody as to what we are, what we stand for, and, and how we've driven forward in the, in the last nine years. And it's, it's phenomenal. Nine years, talking yeah. earlier. Next yeah. year is our 10th season competing at the British Superbike wow. Championships. It's uh, phenomenal. It's quite a neat segue into the fact that, you know, motorsport, as we know, is a very expensive 
business. I mean, for the, again, for the listeners, this is a, a big infrastructure that you've got here. You're running four four bikes, four gusting five bikes. So yeah, we've yeah. Got, um, so big, it's a one significant of the teams in the paddock. A yeah. significant exercise that you've going on. So without necessarily talking specific numbers, could you just perhaps talk a little bit about specifically what's involved in terms of how you get this infrastructure set up and kind of what's involved in how you attract funding and this is a great opportunity to perhaps to talk about any funding opportunities that people yeah. can contribute to because this is obviously a, a fantastic endeavor that you've got going on a very worthy cause and maybe some of our listeners would like to contribute yeah, to that, that as well yeah, i mean that would obviously great. be a great yeah. outcome yeah so the the, the whole team uh, everyone in it has a military background or is linked directly to um, someone with a military background so setting up and all of that is it's all brought together so for us the the sort of therapy or activities take place here in the paddock four days of, of the guys and girls living eating breathing together and being that family and that camaraderie and we just happen to be putting bikes out on track at the same time yeah so the the, the whole organisation is run on a voluntary basis. Um, nobody is, is paid uh, a penny out of what we do, and it is funded entirely through either uh, corporate support, public donations, or merchandise sales. So um, we run very heavily, as you'll have seen, uh, because we don't charge people to ride our bikes because they're benefiting and they're all going to benefiting others. Yeah. The fund for the central pot funds everything that we do. So um, we need that kind of corporate funding to do it and pay the whole bill. So, And you have some associations, I guess, with other teams in the paddock who are also... Yeah, so we're, we're, we're really well supported by the OMG Superbike team. Their yeah. owner, Alan, is an ex-military person. So obviously straight away when he came into the paddock a few years ago, um, found out who we were and, and straight away has, has helped us massively over the years. We've got other organisations that support us as well. So Yeah. Do you have some form of uh, giving uh, possibility on your website? Yes, yeah, we, we've a, got. A, a yeah, link there's a donations link on our website. There's yeah. a, a merchandise page on there, so people can purchase merchandise that directly supports our activities as well. Yeah, excellent. So, listeners, there's your opportunity to uh, contribute to a www.trueheroesracing.co.uk. Okay, and we'll we'll stick that on the show notes as Brilliant. well when this goes out. And then, so. Can you tell us just a little bit about where you are in the standings this year? I mean, 2021, obviously, it's been a bit of a weird year in terms of getting going and a slightly condensed calendar, I suppose, compared to some years. But um, Yeah, it's been a tough year this year with back-to-backs, yeah. yeah. Um, so we've done a normal season but condensed it into a really short period. And I guess that puts kind of additional pressure on you, given that this is all voluntary. Yes. And so that, yeah. that condensed calendar is presumably yeah, quite a challenge. Yeah, it, it's been a real challenge. And, and, you know, it's the final round this weekend. And we are starting to feel that that you know we're looking forward to a little bit of a winter break although yeah. i don't get a winter break i'm already <laughs> starting planning starting funding sourcing for next year yeah. uh, and working where we go but yeah it's, it's certainly been a tough year um from a standings perspective like i was saying earlier we're not trying to build careers for motorcycle races is about competing and, and taking part in the sport results are great and like today has been a real lift for the team yeah we had a really good result last time out at donington park with uh, one of our uh, veteran riders finishing the points in the super stock 1000 class which is phenomenal really we think they're ex-superbike riders or superbike riders of the future in that class yeah, so yeah. that was really good for us but as can well can you sort of without talking specifics obviously presumably you can sort of measure the, the rehabilitation and, and and the sort of what this gives to the yeah, it's, in this. it's it's a real you know the holistic um, therapy type of organisation. We we're not we're not clinical. 
Um, we don't claim to be clinical. Um, we've got no structured program. We leave that to the experts in their field. Mm -hmm. What we do is offer a unique opportunity beyond their clinical recovery um, to be amongst like-minded individuals. Um, uh, but you know, to give you a, a case study, I suppose isn't the right word, but and, um, we've got a, a Falklands veteran involved in the team. So you know, next year is 40 years since the Falkland campaign in 1982. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I can't believe that. Mm -hmm. You know where that's gone, but for him. Donington Park is a problem because of the airport right next door, the flight path is straight over the paddock, and it's constant flights. You know, there's a couple of hours break in the middle of the night. Yeah. For him, that is his trigger to take him back to being in the Falklands. But he would rather come for four days and get very little sleep than not come to the events at all, yeah. be with the rest of the team. Um, so that's how important it is to some of the guys and girls we've got involved with us. It gets them out of their normal world, they go away and they can shut themselves off from all their problems for four or five days uh, and come away and come away with a completely different mental sort of position on the Sunday when we leave. Yeah. Um, we've had problems in the past with people who have had, obviously people have their highs and lows uh, and we generate such a high that they've had such really bad lows. So with you know you know spin off and and then that perspective, mm. but um, and then you throw into the mix the physical side of things when we're proving to people who have suffered some severe life changing physical injuries that they can go on and do some amazing things, um, and prove to a wider audience that they can go on and do some amazing things. You know, who ever thought that a double amputee with no legs below knee would ever race a motorcycle in the British? Well, yeah, well you've just got to look at the results well, in the we races. Did it, we did it ten years ago. Phenomenal. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and so. I suppose just wrapping up a little bit. Twenty twenty two, we're going to be back in the paddock. I'm of course, sure. celebrating yeah, the tenth yeah. anniversary then. So yeah, yeah. You know, can we talk uh, of the plans for next year? In terms um, of what, what for me, every year is, is further expansion. It gives um, gives our operations manager and our team manager a headache every year because I want to do more. Um, because the more bikes we run, there's more opportunities for people to get involved. Obviously, our limiting factor is always cold hard cash. Yeah. There's, you know, there's bills that need to be paid. But yeah, we're looking for some, some further expansion next year. Um, looking to run as a minimum five bikes, um, wow. which will mm. probably make us one again one of the, the biggest, if not the biggest, single team in the paddock. We've had a meeting this afternoon with a company because we need a bigger awning because that's not big <laughs> enough. Yeah. And you've seen the size of our truck and our awning. Yeah, it's, it's big, big enough. It's big. <laughs> um, so you know, there's some logistical speed bumps to overcome but they'll be overcome without a doubt yeah and we do have some other exciting plans next year with respect to potential um disability use within the sport we broke new ground in in 2013 as i said when we brought a bubble amputee in um and we're looking at something else that's never been done in the bsb again next year but um watch this space watch this space yeah okay you know, if we need to find the funding that's ultimately what it comes down to uh, and that's if they've got one frustration it is purely that that you know I know there's so much more we can do and the more opportunities we can offer but ultimately we can't do that without funding we're not funded by the military we're not funded by the government we're not funded by any big military charity uh, we're funded by the goodwill um, and support of, of the public and uh, corporate organizations out there okay so just the website once more just so that we definitely it's, get um, in there. www trueheroesracing.co.uk Brilliant. Um, if you Google it, we're pretty high up on the on the Google Analytics. Yeah, I did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and there's loads of information on there, uh, contacts, uh, if people are interested in potentially supporting us, uh, as well as I mentioned earlier, the merchandise available on the shop to order sure. online. Okay. Well, 
I don't want to take up too much of your time, so that's probably a good point at which to wrap up. But Phil, thank you very much indeed yeah, for your time. It's been great to find out some more about the team. Hopefully we can catch up perhaps at uh, some point next season, yeah, see definitely. how things are going, yeah, see yeah. how those plans are. Uh, come into fruition and um, yeah because I'm going to try and get along to as I've told the Motorpod listeners because they've been kind of starved of BSB for the last few years so yeah I'm going to try and get along to a lot more races and so we'll we'll stay in touch and we'll look forward to seeing how the team goes thanks for your time brilliant thank you Thanks to Phil for spending some time with us there. As I said, we'll definitely catch up with Phil. The team have some plans, which I'm not privy to, but he told me there were some some big plans for the 2022 season. So it'll be great to catch up with Phil and find out what they're what they're doing. I should just add that on the Sunday in the Ducati Tri Options second race of the weekend, their rider Ben Faller, I think is the correct way to pronounce his, uh, his surname, had his best finish of all time, I think, and certainly of the season in fifth place. So uh, as I say, that is a high quality field of bikes so finishing fifth is a is a tremendous effort anyway moving on to bsb race number three so the final race of of the season mckenzie uh, as he's quite entitled to do was running the number one plate which i don't know where you stand on this jim but i always like to see champions running the one plate rather than sticking with their regular number did you have a in or out of the water on that one? Oh, i think it should be i grew up dirt tracking and you worked all year for that number one plate you rode the following year with that number one plate and i always i always liked the way dirt track in america does the numbering on the bikes defending champion runs a number one plate after that you run a single digit number and you know the numbers one through nine are all former champions because they have a single digit and then after that you have the you have the double digit numbers uh there are people who've never won a championship and if a person had a letter behind their number that meant they were like a rookie or hadn't earned enough points for a national number yeah so i always thought that was really cool so i'm i'm a big fan of the gotta have a, if you want a number one you race the number one and you think about it nikki hayden's the last guy to actually ride with a number one in moto gp for the defending champ nikki yep. was a dirt tracker so it makes sense yeah, there you go. There you go. So Mackenzie was running the number one plate as he was entitled to do, having won the championship earlier in the day. We know that Bridal was going to be desperate for a win. So really, this race, we don't need to dwell on it for too much longer because this was effectively a, a rerun, a carbon copy, as you said earlier, Jim, of race number two, really. So Mackenzie got out in front at the beginning, but Bridewell, very determined, was was through by lap number two. Um, all of the showdown contenders, proving the old adage that the cream always rises to the top, with the exception of Glenn Irwin, who was one of the showdown contenders, but he kind of bashed his shoulder up earlier in the season. So the, the last third of the season has been a bit of a struggle for Glenn. And I think he's, if not had it already, will be having some corrective surgery on that. Other than that, Bucken, Iden, Hickman, all of the top eight guys who were in the showdown were, were up front early on. But pretty soon we had Bridewell bolting out front again, building up a bit of a lead with Mackenzie in second and a fairly secure second. And you just kind of knew that it was going to be one of those races where Mackenzie just inexorably started to pull that gap in with a view towards the last couple of laps. And sure enough, that's pretty much what happened. Mackenzie was biding his time and he was owning that paddock hill pass uh, again, Jim, because I think uh, around about lap 16, quite deep into the race, he was back past Bridewell at, at Paddock Hill, as, as was the case over the, the whole of the, the weekend's racing. Really, they, There was plenty of changing places between the two of them, but Mackenzie just wasn't to be denied. And so, again, last lap, Paddock Hill bend, he got through. What was interesting in this race, 
kind of going back to what we were talking about with the Portimao race in terms of red flags was that it wasn't very clear precisely what had happened. But from what I can gather, having seen a clip on, on, on the mighty Twitter, I think Danny Buchan somehow managed to run into the back of Christian Iden at the approach to Paddock Hill Bend. If I'm wrong on that, I'll hold my hands up and say I'm sorry because it wasn't no, that's what I had. really very I had easy had, to, had, to spot it. Yeah, Bucking had had basically went into the back of Iden and they were they both crashed there at Paddock Hill Bend. Yeah, it was a heavy heavy crash, and your immediate thought was, well, that that's a red flag. But I suppose it was just that odd scenario where it happened on the last lap, and by the time the corner workers were there, kind of seeing what was going on, pretty much the whole field had gone through, and then it was going to be the checkered flag. So interestingly, in this particular instance, the red flag didn't come out if that had happened a, a, a lap prior then for sure that would have been a red flag incident because both riders were pretty wobbly when they eventually got up onto their feet i mean they were physically i think both okay i don't know if there was concussions involved because again at paddock hill there's not a lot of runoff and particularly if you go down heading into paddock hill there's very very little runoff so it was a heavy hit it looked to me like they had crashed sort of much earlier in the beginning of the bend yeah, and they sort of yeah. trajectoried off into potentially an area where there wouldn't really be a great chance of impact by anybody else. Plus, once the guys had come around and had a checkered flag, everybody's going to be off the gas anyway. And if you had a couple of waving yeah. yellows there, you could easily see where nobody was really going to charge into that corner trying to pass somebody else because the race was done at that point. So I understand why there isn't a red flag. I again, again, if it's a lap earlier, there's a red flag for that one for sure. Yeah, definitely. Good call by race control. John Hopkins had what was effectively the the, the final kind of big crash of of a crash-strewn career, I think it would be fairly accurate to say, at at Paddock Hill Bend. In fact, I was stood on the corner when when it happened. So he, and he was riding on the Ducati that, and the team that Bridewell rides for now, as I, as I mentioned, and he had exactly that same crash, albeit it was on his own. I think it might have even have been in a qualifying session, possibly in the race. I can't exactly remember, but he lost the front on the approach because uh, it's very bumpy going into that turn. And so he kind of hit the barriers precisely the same as that crash unfolded. As I recall, I think he bust his knees or one of them at least anyway in that, in that accident. And I don't think he ever really came back and raced again. So anyway, again, because it was a bit of a carbon copy, we, we had another last turn uh, duking out session between Bridewell and Mackenzie. Again, I think Bridewell went a little bit wide. And so it was just that kind of uh, drag race to, to the flag. And proving that the BSB Yamaha, at least, is not short on power. <laughs> Mackenzie got across the line first. And so he did the triple for the weekend, which I'm not sure if that's the first time Mackenzie's done a triple at a BSB round, but I'm tempted to say it probably is. So it was a good time to do a triple uh, on Mackenzie's part. So as we know, he, he'd already secured the championship, but Bridewell's really strong weekend performance with three second places elevated him from fourth at the beginning of the weekend to ultimately finishing the, the championship in second place overall so that was a very sort of uh, he'll, he'll obviously be disappointed to have missed out on the championship and he was in the end he was 36 points behind but he made up a lot of points to be fair over the course of the weekend and as i say he he catapulted himself in front of Eden and o'halloran in the championship standings so that will give him a fair bit of confidence i think for next year because he's staying with the same team yeah again same bike that- yeah, I think is McKenzie staying or is he moving on? Do we know? Because it would probably be a really well, good year, but for those two guys battling each other. Yeah, this is kind of just a couple of sort of brief newsy-ish items. Although, unlike in some of the international series, BSB tends to be more into the you know the few months before the new season starts, before some of the slots start to get filled. 
I'm pretty sure Jason O'Halloran is staying at McCam's Yamaha and Bridewell is definitely staying at the Oxford Products Ducati team. Mackenzie, everybody was expecting that he would be off to World Superbike and I think he was expecting that as well. Whether perhaps this year because of COVID and the way the championship ran schedule wise, it's finished very late compared to most years. So whether that has kind of precluded him from doing a deal earlier in the year to get into World Superbike, that might be a factor. But from what I've read and heard on some of the coverage, the couple of rides that are available to him in World Superbikes are requiring a fairly substantial amount of euros to go with him. And, you know, that's difficult to raise that sort of money in Great Britain, which is not famous for supporting, well, motorsport and in particular motorcycle races. So I think in all likelihood, Mackenzie is likely to run the number one plate on the same bike, same team next year. That's a shame. From what I saw, he's a talented lad. Yeah. He did run in Moto2 for a few races a few seasons ago. I don't know if you remember that. He subbed Ooh. for a few races. I'll, I'll have to go back and look at which team he rode for. But he certainly rode a couple of rounds, one of which was uh, Silverstone that year. So he's got you know, a little bit of exposure on the world scene. But uh, it, it's, a, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a indictment of the times, I suppose, that the guy who's done a sterling job and won the championship in Britain this year can't find a seat that doesn't require hundreds of thousands of euros in the World Superbike paddock, because that's really where he should be as a as the natural progression, in my opinion. Mm. Yeah, I, it, it, everyone from BSB should progress to World Superbike just from the standpoint of similar equipment, same tires. There is it's sort of a natural progression to go to that other side and ride over there, and it's a shame that they they can. I mean, there was Superbikes in the beginning, the 80s, the 90s was all fast and all the names were british right uh, fogarty yeah. and i mean the list could go on and on i can't remember all of them right now but yeah it's a shame it's yeah fortunately yeah. it's the status of where the world is there's isn't cigarette money laying around like there was in the night in the uh, 90s early 2000s yeah i but i also think an element of it is that motorcycle racing and i suppose you could you could lay some of the blame for this if not the blame is the right word at all but you know your fogarty's your, your rossies you, you know the big national heroes they've, they've encouraged such a lot of grassroots interest that now we're in a situation where there are so many quality riders from all over the world i mean we've got lots of very good riders coming in from southeast asia now as we're seeing so there just aren't enough bikes for the number of very high, highly qualified riders to, to jump onto them at the world level but it is a shame as you say that the, the guy that's won the in my opinion the preeminent national superbike series in the world can't find a seat in on, on you know in the world superbike paddock so anyway it's good for us you know in britain yeah. going and watching because he's going to be doing his doing his stuff in all likelihood maybe they around the uk next to throw in like you know uh hundred thousand pounds or something to the winner to help find a ride you know as a incentive yeah. right but then again why yeah. do you want to lose why for them why would they want to do it because then why would they want to lose their their talent it's, yeah it's, who knows yeah it's a, it's a tricky one isn't it it's a, it's a yeah. tricky one and it's not just not to say that the world superbike paddock is lacking in quality you, you know that we must say that in the interest of fairness as well sure, but yeah. um just too many good riders and not enough bikes i suppose the, the other person i was just briefly going to mention before we wrap up was uh, rory skinner now he was one of the lads on the uh, fs3 green kawasaki's he was one of the guys involved in that altercation in race two around the time of well not around the time during the silverstone weekend there was some mention that he was going to be in moto two next year now skinner 
was a sort of shining light uh, as a I mean, he's not exactly an old guy now. He's probably not much more than 18 or 19. But certainly when he was coming up as a, as a youngster, he was highly rated, as indeed he still is. But he went across to Europe, I think, for a few years and did, did OK. But again, you're in, in the melee of Spaniards and Italians and so on. And things didn't quite work out. And I'm sure funding would have been you know, part of that equation as well. So he had to come back to the, to the UK uh, and absolutely blitz the field in, in the Supersport category last year. I mean, he, he won just about everything which got him the ride on the Kawasaki and well in, in British Superbikes this year he won a race uh, in his first season at Knock Hill he's a Scot so you know he won on home turf but I don't suppose he's done that many races around Knock Hill so I mean he's a high high quality rider so it will remain to be seen whether this Moto2 ride actually comes off at some stage as I say the talk around Silverstone this year when the MotoGP circus was in town was that he was going to be in the championship next year but now I've read, I, I don't know this, obviously, I'm just going on some of the things I read, but that that might happen in, in 2023. Because I think Dorna are quite keen that, you know, there's a few fast Brits in the championship. So we'll have to wait and see if, if anything happens with regards to Rory Skinner. But he's going to be an interesting guy to watch next year, having one full season under his belt and the continuity of staying on the same bike and the same team, which for me is a very underrated thing you quite often see riders jumping around in the national series year after year from one bike and one team to another and they kind of lack that continuity so he's got that kind of family feeling in that team so i'm really kind of going to be yeah interested to see what what he can do next year it sounds fascinating i mean it's a shame that these guys jump around teams and whatnot but the sort of same thing happens here in the u.s as well so yeah i I understand why it happens rory skinner's a guy i'm going to see if it's possible perhaps to try and have a chat with him at some point upcoming uh, and indeed with the other classes we haven't talked about the others and we're, we're running out of time now to do it I, i'm going to try and figure out a way next season that we can maybe not focus entirely on bsb i think what i'm going to try and do is we'll obviously we'll focus a little bit on bsb as much as we can in amongst MotoGP and everything else but if there is a i'll try and pick the standout support race of the weekend from the other classes and we'll have a quick chat about that even if it's just me talking about it because it might not be possible coverage wise for you to see everything jim but you know super stock you know the super sport races even the national 300 kind of their version of super sport 300 that we have here some fantastic racing going on and i took much more of an effort to, to watch some of this stuff over the brands weekend so for sure we'll we'll focus in on some of that i'm very interested in michael laverty uh, and his his team in the honda talent cup as we mentioned a couple of episodes ago he's going to be running a full-blown moto 3 team in yep. gps next year uh, and this is obviously the talent ladder to mm-hmm. feed through you know the, the next set of brits coming up through in the next few years so we'll, we'll we'll focus in on on those guys as well so yeah it's, it's hopefully good times ahead and hopefully this will all be good in terms of our our avid listeners in terms of generating some more followers hopefully and keeping the the feedback coming in yep sounds like a great plan i'm all looking forward to it so on the back of that specifically uh, if anybody would like to throw in any comments or suggestions or as you always say jim things that they like things that they don't like uh, we're, we're all ears to, to the to the good and bad so you can uh, get on the email to us at motopod at motopodcast.com i'm on twitter at at Richard Jowett or Instagram, just just Richard Jowett, lowercase. Uh, Jim, you are at at Moto RGV, Instagram and Twitter. You'll be hearing from Jim and I towards the end of next week because we have Valencia 
to look forward to this coming weekend. Boohoo, it's the final MotoGP round of the season, but all good things must come to an end. But we've got, um, I suppose the main interest, Jim, is going to be Remy Gardner versus Raul Fernandez in the Moto2 to see who's going to come out on top. Yeah, that that, and I, I want to see what they do for Rossi in his final ride. I, I retweeted yep. something from Toby Moody, who Toby suggested that everybody were, were would stop along the track and Rossi would ride by them and then they would all ride back together with Rossi and there would be a red carpet rolled out to the start finish line and all of Rossi's championship winning bikes would be there at the end of that red carpet and Rossi would roll up and stop there and fireworks and all kinds of things would happen. I think that's a great idea. You know, I really want to see them do something special for Rossi uh, I think he yeah. deserves that because uh, I think he saved MotoGP, uh, and I don't mean that lightly. I really do think he did. It was in a dark place, and Rossi had the right amount of charisma, talent, and playfulness that made him a superstar in the worlds of amongst everybody. You know, he is the Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods of yeah. motorcycling. And that is an impressive feat and it needs to be shown some respect and something worthy of a man who gave so much to the sport that he truly loves. Yeah. And that's started off on the right footing. I don't know if you saw any of it. I, I mean, I haven't watched the footage, but I've seen some photos from the, uh, another extraordinary press conference uh, today, uh, which was a Valentino Rossi final press conference in MotoGP and pretty much all of the paddock riders wise, certainly MotoGP class turned up, uh, you know, to be there and to, to salute him. So it's, it's very hard to imagine that something pretty major won't be going off on, on Sunday, uh, as indeed it absolutely should do. I mean, there's nothing, in my opinion, I, I've, I've spoken down a bit on Rossi over the last few years because I do think he's probably stuck around a little bit too long and, and has kind of potentially tarnished his reputation a little bit uh, in a negative way which I he's going made the right decision uh, for a number of different reasons but there is nothing Dorna could ever do to repay what he has given to the sport and given to them as the rights holder in terms of you know the sheer amount of publicity and, and interest not to mention the avalanche of of rider talent, young talent coming through as a result of the fan worship that he's generated. And, and I would include the likes of Mark Marquez in there because, I mean, they've all admitted to having posters of him on the wall when they were growing up. So his contribution to the sport is immeasurable. Yeah, he's done it all uh, from the whole way around. There, I don't have anything to, there's nothing, no way that I can think to describe Rossi. I'll have to think about this because we're obviously going to have to do that for Valencia. But it is... I agree with you. I think Rossi stayed at the dance a little too long and he should have left a little earlier, but that's his choice. Um, He definitely didn't get forced out like Schumacher did with the coming of Massa and Raikkonen in F1. I thought that was terrible the way Schumacher Mm. was dealt with. Rossi is Rossi and there are legions of fans that are now going to look for another Italian hero and that very well could be Ben Yaya. Those fans wouldn't be fans if it wasn't for Rossi having done everything that he did. So regardless of how you think about Rossi, he's made our sport greater and better than it was. He he left it in a far better place than when he started. That's for sure. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I know we mustn't go on too much longer, but bearing in mind that he came in right at the, the tail end of the GP500 class and, and had that you know honour and distinction of winning the final 500cc championship and the inaugural four-stroke title, you, you know, is is a something on his CV which is, is brilliant. After I, I tweeted out earlier on, you've probably seen it as well, all of his championship winning bikes are on display yeah. in the paddock uh, yep. at Valencia. And I was kind of keen to know, because I, I, I do know, I'm sure I've read that HRC always refused to give him any of the bikes he rode for them. Whereas the Yamahas that are on display, I believe belong to him. I, I think, think it was contractually part, part of his agreement. They, they were so desperate to get him that they would have agreed to anything, basically. So to the Yamahas, I believe, are from his own collection. But I'm interested to know if HRC have supplied the, the NS500 and the two RCVs that are there. Because, you know, given the bad blood, which to my mind has never really gone away. I mean, Rossi has never entertained the idea, for example, when he had the Moto3 team of, of running a Honda. The blood is, is, is pretty sour between them. So I'd be interested to know where those bikes have come from, whether they're private collector bikes or whether they've come from the HRC Museum. Cause that I would, be would a... suspect that they came from the HRC Museum. I, you know, yeah. it is um, sort of the same, same topic. Hayden actually had his championship winning bike. It still is in the possession of his family yeah. in Kentucky. Oh, okay. um, that was written into his contracts because he had like his – championship winning cbr 600 he's got his championship winning rcv uh, rc51 sorry superbike yeah that he and he has that and he has that bike as well uh, but that was written into his contracts early on and that was a i think that was a sticking point on one contract if i'm not mistaken i'm not 100 on that one but i believe that uh-huh. given the status of what rossi is i do think that hrc probably brought those motorcycles to bear um, from the museum they're definitely not rossi's and I don't think that any of them are really any personal collectors. I don't think because those don't usually would, disappear. Would, <laughs> no, I would I would doubt it. Yeah, but uh, anyway, but I mean, we've got um, the MotoGP race. Okay, titles decided. Moto3 race title decided. We, we've got the the Gardner Fernandez to look forward to. Uh, just one question for you, Jim, just before we go. Given as a as an ex racer, would you rather be Fernandez or, or Gardner going into this weekend? Bearing in mind. Fernandez has to win and he's kind of relying on Gardner not finishing but on the same token if Gardner crashes in the race would you rather chase or be the chased wow that is a really good question it's a kind of horrible points gap at the minute because it's so small yeah. the points that he has to protect that it's almost kind of the sort of thing you think oh dear I hope it doesn't go disastrously wrong in some way I really hope it doesn't because I want Gardner to win the championship I've got to say wow. as, you know the... uh, man that's that's hard i it kind of feels I, my, my take on it is it kind of yeah. feels like fernandez has got everything to gain uh, and gardner's got everything to lose i yeah but i see it the other way around uh, maybe because it's the racer side of it i would rather be remy i'd rather be you have to deal with me because i i i would i would have you're not there because you don't have self-confidence Right, you are confident in your ability. So be confident in yourself that you have to beat me, and whatever happens, all I got to do is just be behind you. I would rather try to ride that race than be Fernandez and have to win and hope you got help from somebody else. I, I just, yeah. I think I would go that way. I'll think about that's it. That's kind of why I was 
Because I think that's the racer's perspective, probably. Whereas, you know, a non-racer like me probably thinks it's kind of worse to be in Remy's position. But I guess, you know, taking your point, he just wants to go out there. And I think he's already said he's just going to approach the weekend the same as he would approach any weekend. That's cliche. Everybody says that. Yeah, Everybody (laughs) everybody says that. I mean, I know when we went to the Nationals the year that I won mine, it was like you're in your mind. You're trying to say it's just another track. It's just just this, this is what we do every weekend. Let's just do it here. But you know, we won our heat. We were the fastest guy and we lined up for that final. I'm thinking you really, this is, this is your chance. You have to do this because you're probably not going to get it again. So suddenly it's like, whoa, here comes this pressure coming around or whatever. And I, I remember my dad, you know, right before we, we left to go out for that final, I remember dad just kind of put a shoulder, hand on my shoulder, went underneath there and he says, go ride your race and do your best. And that was, and I thought that was like the greatest advice ever. So yeah. Yeah, I think it's I think it's just easier to do that. All so. will be revealed on Sunday. Yes. All will be done month by Sunday. Looking forward to it. So we'll be recording again uh, our race highlights, I suppose, on Tuesday, all being well. And hopefully there'll be a show out around about next Thursday. So we'll look forward to that. And obviously the big Rossi send off as well. So what a weekend we have in store. It's going to be fantastic. So with that, goodbye, everybody. Ride safe, uh, stay safe. And we'll speak to you next week. Cheers. Thank you.